Welcome to BIV Today. We're the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. And today we're asking how well positioned Canada is, and I guess by extension, British Columbia, to do business with countries across Asia in the coming years. We're going to be looking to build even closer ties, but there are a lot of trade uncertainties going on across the globe. And HSBC economist Fred Newman, he joins the show in a moment to discuss the state of Asian economies amid ongoing geopolitical uncertainty. Meanwhile, we've all been hearing the word blockchain bandied about in the last little while. Now companies are actively seeking credible technical experts in this emerging field. But do these experts yet really exist. Lighthouse Labs co-founder Jeremy Shackey is going to join us a little later on to discuss why his coding school is launching a new program aimed at experienced developers who want to become blockchain experts. But first, here's Fred Newman from HSBC. With Canada's recent signing of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and a free trade agreement with South Korea, our economy is becoming increasingly intertwined with the economies of Asia. I think we all know that, being based here in Vancouver, of course, Kirk. Mm -hmm. But uh, are these economies positioned to flourish or are there still some challenges ahead? Before our next guest joined HSBC in 2006, he was an adjunct professor at various American universities, including Johns Hopkins, where he taught graduate courses on Asian sovereign risk analysis, financial markets, monetary policy, and Southeast Asian political culture. Now calling in from Toronto, where he's attending the Global Emerging Markets Conference, it is Fred Newman. He's managing director and co-head of Asian economics research at HSBC. Fred, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. So we've seen a lot of maybe geopolitical uncertainty going on in East Asia recently. I'm wondering if from your perspective at all, is this dampening growth prospects over that region of the world? We haven't really seen any evidence of that, to be honest. There's a lot of headlines coming out of Asia, out of the region. But if you look at growth numbers, China's economy uh, continues to grow 6.8% or thereabouts. And uh, some of the other economies in Asia also haven't really slowed. So the momentum remains intact. And it's still one of the top performing areas in the world. You're at a, a global emerging markets conference. I wonder if you might be able to shed um, your own observations on this, on whether there is an emerging understanding in North America about the uh, the heft of the Asian market and what it contributes worldwide and what it can promise us. Well, I think it's still a bit underappreciated, to be honest, particularly uh, in the United States. There's a lot of inward focus among investors, for example, the U.S. economy traditionally being very large. But uh, one uh, argument that we put forward is that uh, China contributes about a third to global GDP growth uh, in the last few years. Emerging Asia, probably more than 50% of global GDP growth. And so the world economy, and even the U.S., to some extent, is affected by what's going on in, in Asia. And so we are traditionally think of emerging markets as being dependent on developed markets, but really uh, the relationship is now uh, going two ways. It's, it's that growth in emerging Asia, for example, does have a major impact on developed markets as well. So it's, a, it's, it's sort of a, a two-way relationship nowadays rather than just a one-way street. So what, what would you ascribe the hesitation to uh, in North America in terms of embracing the Asian economies and, and uh, ingratiating themselves with them? 
Well, one is that obviously the speed of the growth in Asia, I think, even takes uh, economists like myself who follow the region still by surprise. The yeah. uh, the expansion, the purchasing power increases are just enormous in recent years. <laughs> yeah, um, a, and so a, bad, a bad year is 8% growth. You know? <laughs> 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 yes, yeah. And it's hard, sometimes it's hard to get your head around this, right? Uh, one, one example is just the tourist numbers coming out of China. Uh, you know, we're looking at 130 million uh, tourists coming out of China annually in the next few years per annum, and uh, that's that's just unprecedented. And if you look at uh, just vehicle sales, for example, Chinese market now by far and away the largest in the world, eclipsing the U.S. Uh, by by uh, by 50 percent easily. Um, and so I think that's that's one of the issues. The other one is also a bit of a lack of understanding. It's a different cultural area. It's, you know, a different. Um, it's it's hard to penetrate uh, in terms of intellectually. You don't quite are familiar with China. It's it's um, you know it's sort of the Asian culture, and and, and there's this there's this sort of this this idea that it's still um, you know difficult to grasp what's really going on. And 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 so we're we're doing a lot of work uh, trying to sort of uh, educate, for lack of a better word, to invest about the opportunities there, about how these economies function. And, and, and very often we encounter sort of a, a bit of, um, uh, you know, reservation because it sort of it seems very unfamiliar for, for many people who are just schooled uh, in, in, in Western capitalism and economics and how things are run over here. Well, I mean, we have a lot of deep ties here in Canada to China, of course, but I think those cultural chasms you're referring to, they were very evident when Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, went and visited Beijing in recent months. And there's a lot of expectations that they would announce a free trade or intentions to pre uh, go forward with a free trade agreement. And that never came to be. And I, I wonder what challenges lay ahead if Canada and China do want to pursue a free trade agreement. So on paper, it makes a lot of sense for both of them to sign a free trade agreement. I'm not privy to the exact obstacles in these negotiations, but it, uh, you know, more broadly, it would make sense uh, because Canada has a lot to offer to China. Uh, one area is obviously agricultural know-how and, and products, and, and that's something where uh, the, the Chinese trying to make inroads, not just in terms of importing agricultural products, but also just to know-how the development of the agricultural sector has become a big priority for the Chinese. Another one is, is education. Uh, the Chinese still are major importers of, of education by way of sending students abroad, and, and that's sort of one area uh, where, where Canada offers complementary, uh, is, is complementary uh, to China's development. And then, and that you, then you go beyond this uh, natural resources, of course, uh, still playing a major role, including energy. Uh, yeah. Energy is still uh, an, a major uh, area of focus for the Chinese in terms of energy security. And that, I think, is something where uh, just, just you know, the Canadian economy will be tied to the hit to the Chinese economy over years to come on the energy angle. Yeah, no question uh, the entire debate out here around the Kinder Morgan pipeline or the pipeline that now the Canadian government is taking over it has everything to do with getting oil to tidewater to then get it to Asia. Uh, do you feel that what Canada has to offer Asia is, um, is sustainable? I mean, it won't. Won't China uh, repatriate its students awfully soon and have the education system in place? Won't it also uh, you know, move itself away from dependence on fossil fuels and be less, uh, less interdependent with, uh, with say, uh, Canadian oil? It would, what do you think are the, are the prospects there? 
Well, it's true that 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 China is making major investments in alternative energy resources, but if you look at projections of the overall energy needs, that the pie is just getting larger and larger. Remember, the economy is growing six and a half percent annually, and that means energy needs are actually growing at roughly the same pace. Um, and uh, that means not all of this can be really met by alternative energy. So the, the projections for fossil fuel imports remain enormous in, in years to come. Plus, China's own resources are actually depleting uh, so that the import requirements actually remain uh, very high. And so it, it's hard to see that being um, sort of displaced anytime soon, energy exports from Canada to, to China by by other energy sources. Uh, if you think about education, uh, yes, the Chinese universities are becoming uh, very globally very competitive. Uh, the, the, the quality of education is improving dramatically. And yet we see a continued rising number of Chinese students wanting to study abroad. Um, remember that the overall student population in China continues to grow very rapidly. Yes. And uh, the type of education Canada offers is, is, is different, right? A different language, a different perspective, and, and Chinese students look for an edge and, and will continue to seek uh, education abroad. Obviously, the opportunities between Canada and China can't be overstated at this point, but we also recently agreed to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which has a lot of emerging economies like Vietnam. I'm wondering about some of the emerging opportunities coming from some of the less developed economies in Asia. Yeah, and I think that's 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 important to recognize. As important as China is, and it's the second largest economy now in the world, and it will be the the, the largest in, in in about a decade. Um, but Asia has uh, a, other large economies, so uh, the ASEAN region in particular, and Malaysia and Vietnam stand out as two countries that actually participate in the TPP are major growth markets uh, in their own right. Young populations very often uh, growth rates sometimes higher than China and uh, perhaps even uh, more business opportunities uh, for Canadian companies, partly because the markets uh, are uh, very open. Uh, these markets are less dominated by sort of dominant uh, uh, local companies. And so um, there's a lot of opportunities opening up there. India, uh, I think, is another interesting market. Um, India is roughly in per capita income terms where China was probably around 2000, uh, you know, just before its major take. Off. Perhaps India is not going to grow quite as quickly as China, but even if it grows at uh, two-thirds, the speed is still going to be a very large market. And I think uh, that that it's important to kind of um, balance out the engagement with Asia, not just to think about it being all China, but no. really about the other markets as well. No. And its scale, of course, is just massive compared to ours. I, I wonder, uh, I think we've gotten almost 10 minutes into the into our discussion now, and we haven't yet had to mention Donald Trump, but we have to mention Donald Trump somehow in this, <laughs> in that, uh, you know, it's not that easy for business to pivot, uh, for countries to pivot, even trade strategies. But are you starting to see already uh, with countries a, um, uh, a greater um, interest in Asia on the basis of just the uncertainty that a Trump administration might pose in terms of trade over the next number of years. Yeah, there's a there's a sense I think that the world is retreating from free trade, but it's if you look closely actually 
you see, for example, the TPP uh, minus the United States, uh, you know, is moving ahead. Uh, there seems to be some sense that uh, countries outside the U.S. continue to have an interest in, in free trade. Within Asia, you also see uh, now talks um, between China, Korea, and Japan, for example, to maybe advance their own trilateral free trade area. There's a, there's a free trade area of the entire Asia-Pacific region uh, called the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. So uh, it, is, it is sort of becoming clear that other countries are continuing to advance uh, trade liberalization and uh, perhaps some of the moves that we've seen out of the United States has accelerated that desire by countries to diversify trade uh, away from the United States and, and to engage Asia bilaterally or, or to build a more of a free trade area within Asia as well. Um, I have to get your uh, uh, observation about what you think might happen, say, if there's a, a relatively successful summit next week uh, with Donald Trump and with the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un. Uh, it, it, are our expectations, you think, a little high on this one about uh, what might then uh, ensue in the way of uh, uh, an unwrapping of the North Korean economy? Well, it is a very involved, tricky issue. It's been it's been intractable for many, many years. So it's it's hard to say that one summit will solve this. But I do think it's uh, considering where we were a year ago, or even six months ago, a huge step ahead. And and the two sides talking certainly is encouraging. Um, one thing to note is that the South Koreans have proposed a, a major economic assistance package to North Korea in the event of of successful talks, and that would actually mean that uh, the North Korean side uh, is has has uh, um, specific dollar amounts uh, uh, sort of to look forward to um, by staying engaged and and that may actually help us uh, to to sort of maintain constructive talks for, for quite some time so we look forward to to this being positive um, but make no mistake uh, it will take years to entirely resolve this issue and uh, it won't be with bumps along the way so um, you know don't look for a quick fix uh, from the summit uh, this is this is going to take a while, but at least we're moving incrementally in the right direction. Well, Fred, I think a lot of fascinating things going on in Asia right now, and I appreciate you lending your insights to us today. Thank you very much. That's Fred Newman, Managing Director and Co-Head of Asian Economics Research at HSBC. Jeremy Shackey from Lighthouse Labs is going to join us next to talk about cultivating credible experts in blockchain. Safe to say we've seen many companies slap the word blockchain onto product services, even their own company Yes, name. Tyler, blockchain Orton. Uh, you're quite right. <laughs> quite right. I, it's making me money on my driver's license right now. So, um, But there are a lot of businesses that are looking to fill a talent gap for an actual need for these experts in Vancouver-based coding school, Lighthouse Labs. They're launching a new program aimed to fill that talent gap. But it's not aimed at maybe some amateurs looking for a quick accreditation in the field. Instead... It's focusing on providing skills to expert developers who want to bolster their blockchain know-how. And joining us today, it's Jeremy Shackey. He is CEO of Lighthouse Labs. Jeremy, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you both so much for having me. Are, are you concluding right away that this is not for amateurs, that actually this, <laughs> you really already have to have some degree of sophistication uh, to be able to grapple with blockchain? 
I mean, I'm concluding that anybody that's doing stuff for amateurs is already doing it. And maybe someone needs to be doing something for the professionals. And so that's where we started. Uh, we really saw a gap on the side of anybody doing things for developers themselves, who are the people who are really needed to advance blockchain technology. And in looking at what companies were looking for and looking how hard it was for developers to even transition over and learn it, yeah. uh, it became pretty obvious that we should be helping developers learn blockchain. Well, the question I have right now, are there any real experts at this point? Because it's such a nascent technology. And I'm wondering how you guys are ensuring that what you're delivering to people is you know, up to expertise. Yeah, uh, I mean, so there are experts, there are people who've been around in blockchain for five years, four years, maybe those are the really, really early ones. Um, and then what you have is kind of a depth of people who've been doing this now for a year and a half to two years. But these are these are what you call early adapters, the people who are really jumping on with something like Ethereum, uh, and spending a mm -hmm. lot of time focusing on it, learning it. And that is the development world. The development world is always changing. You know, there's your expertise goes out the window pretty quickly. Now, with more of a developer you are, the more senior you are, the more time you've thought about this stuff, um, the easier it is to adapt to change. The key with something like blockchain is it's a little bit paradigm changing. It's not, uh, you don't, it's not like web development in the sense that you can just throw something out there and keep iterating it. It's, there's not a lot of documentation online about it. So what you really have to do with blockchain is pay attention to it and to its, all its changes and the stuff that's coming out and the crazy uh, forks in the road that it takes. Um, and those people who've been doing that for about a year and a half now um, on something like Ethereum, uh, they are people who know quite a bit. And the best they can tell you is why it's developed to the point that it has. At that <laughs> point, that's where it stops. Is, uh, is blockchain's uh, reputation hinging entirely on the credibility of cryptocurrency? Yeah, it's a great question. It's the one that I expect to get the most uh, with everything we're doing. So I would tell you that it seems very much like the dot-com bubble. Um, you know, something's going to happen where everybody jumps on, sees a possibility to make money, and all the entrepreneurs, business people find these developers who just figure out how to make them websites, in this case, make them blockchains, uh, for ICOs and cryptocurrencies. As soon as that bubble pops if it does and you know i'm not here to speculate what the future of crypto is um the people who've been learning the blockchain technology for a long time will have also been working on other ways to use that technology and their experience with that technology um, they're going to take it into areas that are really interesting and yeah. what we see and the reason we are in this whole space is that blockchain does have in our minds a very strong future as it's addressing a really key problem to all of us especially with some of the latest news um, which is how data is secured in third-party ways um, and how essentially people can access it uh, in ways that you don't have to go to this one group who owns all of your information and that's so, really problematic. so the long game in this one then jeremy is not just the the security of data but also the transparency Absolutely. Of it, right? Absolutely. And so, um, I, mean, I I know you don't want to speculate, <laughs> but okay, we're going to ask you to speculate. Are we talking about, say, two, three years down the road after we have a little bit of this skirmish with cryptocurrency that, that then blockchain emerges and becomes an essential ingredient in fintech and then in even some of the more conventional business industries? <sighs> yeah, you, you said I don't have to speculate. Um, no, I'm... 
I'm prognosticate then. Oh, for prognosticate. Yeah, I can yeah, do that. Right. Yeah, I okay, can do that. Um, what I really believe is happening with blockchain is that the corporate side, the government side have actually jumped on board, um, which makes it something that's getting a lot more investment than, say, previous nascent technologies. Um, and what that's doing is there are a lot of companies, entrepreneurs, individuals staring down the different ways of building on this technology. Um, third, third world countries are looking at this in more serious ways from a identification of human being type way because their record keeping is a challenge in general. Um, yeah. There's a lot going on that I don't think... I think the two years uh, for crypto will be very defining and for fintech will be very defining. Uh, I think blockchain is already starting to emerge in other areas, although I do very much agree that whenever whenever people are talking to me about all the uses of blockchain, I don't think I've seen quite yet the the stuff that's really jumping out other than maybe in the supply chain space. Right. Well, there's obviously, and, and I did a story on this, there's a lot of maybe junior miners that now put the word blockchain on their company or what have you. But what are the companies that are really interested in this sort of technology? What are they telling you about what's needed? What kind of expertise that they want? What are the skills that they really need right now? Well, so first of all, just to address the putting it on your resume, we had our, our joke was we launched our Lighthouse Labs launch our pilot uh, in Toronto a couple of weeks ago for our program. Um, and one of our students put blockchain uh, just on their LinkedIn as blockchain training on blockchain. And they had to take it off because the amount of headhunters and recruiters oh. that came after them was incredible. And they all kind of laughed about it in the class and saying, well, at least we know there's kind of a job market for this. Oh, yeah, um, there will be. You know, yeah. Yeah. I didn't I said I literally said training. Um, I should put down blockchain journalist on my LinkedIn. And I'm sure, you know, we'll, we'll see all the junior miners that maybe come uh, rushing in my way. I don't know. <laughs> I think you could just put a sticker on your car. Just yeah, put the like bumper that. sticker yeah. and you're good to go, right? Vanity plate, I, I see it. A more analog LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> do the Vancouver thing. Get a tattoo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, in terms of skill sets that people are looking for, um, I mean, there is a big, um, I guess, not transition. There's there's a big convergence between something like private blockchain. So people who've working on who are working on stuff like Hyperledger, which is IBM's big project. And the idea of private blockchains is very alluring to the corporate space, um, where they may not build believe in this whole kind of uh, anarchy, kind of you know third party. Nobody owns your information. They're going well. There's reasons to have a blockchain in a bank um, or in a corporation, and there's a lot of value in distributed ledgers for something like that, where all the information is being stored in a, in a combined way across multiple areas so that everything is secure. No one person can affect or change or smudge out numbers and results. Um, Ethereum is, in terms of public uh, blockchain, Ethereum is one that is getting a lot of traction uh, because it's more than just the Bitcoin blockchain. It can do so much more. And smart contracts uh, for us, what we're looking for is if we're teaching our blockchain developers uh, wide um, a lot of breadth on the blockchain space and how they're going to continuously evolve with it because we don't believe anything that they're going to learn in our class right now is something they're going to be working on necessarily in two to three years. Um, the smart contract side is the thing that they yeah. can immediately go into any workplace and start using right away. And that's something that's that just gets their foot in the door in a blockchain space um, where they can continue learning and evolving with it. So is there a, um, any kind of anxiety already in uh, in business about not having contended with blockchain early enough and uh, the feeling of the, that there has to be a catch up here 
or or is it that we're you know everybody's going to grow together and not to worry this is not you know you you haven't missed the train yet um i think it's a really mixed feeling i think there's also the people who are feeling like they're being pushed towards it right and don't and think this might be a huge waste of money so that's the third group mm-hmm. of people yeah. um you see a, a wide variety of people uh, making some pretty bold claims one way or the other. Um, but there's no doubt that everybody doesn't want to miss the train. So they're starting to put their money and dabble in it um, and go towards it. So I don't know that, I don't think anyone's behind. I don't think, I think people can jump in, groups can jump in right now and organizations can jump in right now and be playing with it because I think yet, yeah, I think the way we're going to use blockchain is still very, very up in the air. That being said, the one thing that organizations that have started are gaining is a lot of internal ex- expertise and knowledge in this space, which makes figuring out its use case for your business a lot easier. Is there really a, a pronounced gap in, uh, in, supply and demand of expertise in this right now how how large would you suspect it is in this country even i mean we're seeing we're seeing statistics like 14 for every 14 uh job ads for blockchain um there's one blockchain developer so in terms of and that just and that i think quadrupled from six months ago um, I think what we're seeing is a very fast growing. Sounds like Tyler and I are enrolling in your course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just it though. Like what do employers do if they want to hire the right talent? Uh, of, besides, of course, you know, making sure somebody went to the Lighthouse Labs. But <laughs> I mean, what do you do to make sure that the person that you're hiring really does know what they're talking about, really does have a breadth of knowledge when it comes to this sort of stuff, as opposed to just using the right keywords during an interview? That's actually one of the questions we had to address in creating our course. Um, the first, the first, the reason we did our course and built it was we said, okay, well, we don't want a technology to not gain quick enough adoption because there's not enough talent. So that was the premise number one. And when we really looked at it, we said, okay, is this is blockchain at risk of not going at the speed it needs to because of that? The answer was yes. Um, the uh, then once you answer that question, you go, okay. Well, is it responsible to be putting out people who are brand new in blockchain and letting them learn on the job or on the go without necessarily the appropriate mentorship, which at Lighthouse for our junior develop for people who are uh, kind of putting our 10-week boot camp course for web development, they all go into jobs where there are more senior developers who help mentor and take them forwards. Um, I think for a lot of companies, they're finding that one whether it's a consultant or they, they're lucky enough to have one, two, three people in-house, those people are at least able to evaluate and vet the kind of people that are coming their way. And you do have to trust that they're figuring that out. Um, I think there's a lot of companies right now who are just taking a shot and saying, come in. And the, the truth is with developers, that is how always how it's worked when something is this early and nascent. It's that you kind of need the people who are tinkerers and learners and very quick learners and go, okay, let's see if they can align as best as possible with our business. And let's see if we can have business people who can talk to these developers well enough to figure out what they're figuring out and how that works for us, right? And that's a very complicated relationship. So with something that uh, is both uh, technical and conceptual, like blockchain, um, there's all kinds of room for vague pronouncements and in a lot of cases, uh, baffle gap, um, stuff that you just did. So, so, uh, bring me into one of your sessions for a second here and help me, uh, understand, do you, do you end up having like a little mantra of, uh, you know, how to describe blockchain 
succinctly among the people who are taking these courses so that they all leave with a kind of with a common understanding is there is there i'm not looking for the elevator pitch for blockchain i'm looking for like the the escalator pitch like we actually we actually kind of do the opposite Uh, we bring them in and we'll give them four to five different ways that people are describing blockchain Mm -hmm. um, including the pronouncements of how revolutionary or not revolutionary it is and make them read some of the big ones of this is what it's going to change versus no one's figured out how blockchain is going to work at all. And we actually start our course with that challenge, with the idea that what they're going to have to sort out as blockchain developers is the realities behind that. And to have any strong opinion one way or the other is to fly in the face of how much confusion there is right now amongst it all. So you destabilize um, students in a, in a very healthy way. That's yeah. totally, absolutely. If they, right. if they want to jump, if anybody wants to jump into the blockchain space, they should be walking in with an open mind and a confidence in its future, but not a not an optimism that goes beyond uh, rational. Kind of sounds like religion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we've come a long way since blockchain iced tea back in December. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, this is going to be a cool course and appreciate you coming around and talking to us here, Jeremy. Uh, thank you both very much for having me. And uh, when and where? Yeah, um, we'll be Vancouver uh, September 5th, uh, also Toronto September 5th. Our pilot is running right now in Toronto, and we'll be releasing into a few other cities uh, in October. The courses will be about 15 people uh, at most, so we're keeping them small, making sure that we can focus on students right now, uh, and they will be at Lighthouse Labs uh, in Gastown uh, as soon as we uh, as can, soon as we launch. Can you pay for the course in cryptocurrency? Yeah, <laughs> you know what? We're being asked that a lot. And the answer so far is no. <laughs> Good. All right. That's Jeremy Shakey. He's CEO of Lighthouse Labs. And that's it for BIV today. Thanks a lot for listening. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to leave a review. Make sure it's a mere five stars. Be sure to find our stories as well in print and online at BIV.com. We'll see you next time.